The text reads, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our Father, once again, we come before your word. We pray, O God, that you would help us to remember that these are the words that you wrote. These are the words of our God. So God, illumine our minds and hearts that we might understand your desires for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were posed the question of what would you do, what would you do if you knew that your life was going to end soon? If you knew that you were going to die within a year, six months, month, or a week, what would you do? Some people, when they hear news like that, they become depressed or despondent. They hold themselves up. Others would perhaps quit their jobs or go traveling or go to Disneyland or experience all that life has to offer. Some would decide, well, I've got to go see my attorney to be sure that my will is in order. They begin to give things away. They figure out, well, who's going to, who's going to get the house? Who's going to get the car? Who's going to get my golf clubs? Who's going to get my comic books. They decide all these things that they are going to get rid of. But the fact of the matter is, most people don't do that because they don't like to think about the end of their lives. And actually, as many of you know, some of your folks, or like my folks, are getting older and we begin to think about things, about perhaps when they pass on or go home to be with the Lord or whatever it might be. We try to make uh, adequate preparations and we think to ourselves many times, though, that they'll live a lot longer. But it seems that death comes always sooner than expected Many times, at least, they comes unexpectedly sometimes and we live with the full anticipation that tomorrow we're going to wake up and go to our work and do whatever it needs to be done. But oftentimes it is unexpected. We see that sometimes in the news. We see that sometimes when there are tragedies that happen. And the question is, as we look at this text of passage of Scripture, how are we supposed to live thinking to ourselves that, well, life could end tomorrow? When the great reformer Martin Luther was asked what he would do if he knew that the end would come today, he said 
that he would plant a tree and he would pay his taxes. And what he meant by that was merely that we are to simply do what God has called us to do that very day, to be faithful in what God has called us to do. If we're knowing that the end will come, we're not to go and hole ourselves up, live as a hermit, build a bunker in the, in the, in the woods, stock up with all canned foods and Twinkies. We're to live like we should live today. But the attitudes and the actions that we're to have is with Jesus coming is going to be affected by the fact that Jesus is coming. And oftentimes we forget that. We forget that life is short. And that's what Peter points out here. The very first thing that he says here in this text is the end of all things is near. And it's a reference to the coming of Jesus. And he wants us to remember, do you know what? You better be ready to move on. You know, the past couple of weeks, the church office has moved, as you know, temporarily to our homes. And a good amount of stuff is still sitting in my garage and boxes and hasn't been unpacked. And I'm trying to sort through things. But it has been good, I've found. It's been good, as one of the, one of the families here told me that they just carted out over, uh, the, I think, a thousand pounds worth of stuff that they had just stored up. They just took it all to the dump. Well, I've been sifting through some of the stuff, as those of you who know, have been here for a long time as well in this church. You know that we've gone through material like team ministry, team this, and we still have those binders. And it's time for me to throw all of that stuff out because we haven't used it in 15 years. What makes me think that we're going to use it in the next two? Well, it's nice because when we do that, we think to ourselves how efficient we have to become in this temporary situation, how efficient we have and how all this stuff that we gather is just stuff. I talked to a friend who called me. This friend calls me about once a year and gives me about 15 minutes of their time because they have a number of kids and they called me from California and they were just sharing with me just how much stuff they've got in their garage such that they had to hire their cousin to help them to sell it all on Craigslist. So that's what they're doing with all this stuff and their husband is getting mad at them, etc. because they've accumulated all of this quote-unquote junk. We think of all of these things because we collect things, because we think we're going to live here for quite some time. At least that's our, our hope in our mind's eye. And yet our perspective, biblically, needs to be different. If you look in Luke chapter 12 in your Bibles, look in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. This is what Jesus says. He tells us of our perspective in light of what Peter says. The end of all things is near. But Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus tells us about living in the anticipation that he will come. So Luke chapter 12, verse 35, it says this. It says, be dressed, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and they will come up and wait on him, them whenever he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So I ask you this question. 
Are you ready to go to heaven? Are you ready to go to heaven? And are you doing what you should do now in preparation for heaven? I shared with another, another person, another couple that had come and they were talking with me. And I share with them what I've shared with you in the past. Are you doing what you should be doing now in preparation for heaven? Because heaven is going to be completely different. Are you serving God now? Is it your desire to serve the Lord? Because if you don't have a desire to serve the Lord here, you don't want to go to heaven. Heaven is not a place where you want to go. Because in heaven, you'll be serving God for all of eternity. Is your desire to worship God? Well, if it's not, you don't want to go to heaven. Because you'll be worshiping God for all of eternity. Is it your desire to love God and to give yourself to God as a servant of God, as a bond slave to the, to the God that loved us and gave His life for us? If it's not, you don't want to go to heaven. You don't want to go to heaven because heaven is where we will serve God, we will worship God, and we will walk with God. It's not all about us where you sit on some cloud with a harp and wings and a halo and sing songs all day long. You'll have responsibilities. And Peter says, all things are near and this is what you should do. And he outlines three things in attitudes and actions of what we should do in light of the fact that Jesus is going to come. And he says so in verse 7. The first thing we're to do is to pray. To pray with a clear heart and mind. To pray with a clear heart and mind. It says, therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Be of sound mind and sober spirit. In other words, to be clear minded in your thinking and to have the right Spirit, or to be sober, or to be self-controlled. That's what that word means. Godly thinking, godly feelings precede godly prayers. Now, I know many of you probably pray a lot. But the question is, what do we pray for? What is the content of our prayers? I mean, if our heart and our minds are geared towards the fact that Jesus is coming, that eternity will be so important to us, our prayers are going to be a whole lot different than they are now, won't they? Our prayers are going to be a whole lot different. Last Friday during our prayer fellowship, I had the the group who came to pray, look through particular texts. Examples of how the apostles would pray. And they would pray things like, God, open and lighten the eyes of their heart that they might know the love of God and the knowledge of His will, that they might be built up and grounded, etc. Or how Jesus taught us to pray and He exalted God, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be Thy name and Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are our prayers like? Our eyes are set on eternity, then your prayers will be a whole lot different than what perhaps they are now. That's what it says of sound judgment. If you want to pray according to the will of God, then you've got to know what the will of God says. If you want your prayers answered, Jesus has promised that. You pray according to the will of God, your prayers will be answered. Many times our prayers are more self-centered, self-focused, selfish desires, all about us and our, our comforts, our ease. And we ask things in prayer rather than asking from a godly attitude. We ask from a selfish attitude. We ask ourselves things like, God, get me out of this mess. When maybe we should be asking, God, what do you want me to learn out of this difficult time? How do we pray? We pray like the apostles pray. 
or our prayer is more like, God, help me in my job. Help me with that car that always breaks down. Help me in my work. And those things sometimes aren't bad. I'm not saying that they are. But when they are predominantly things about us and our small things that have little to do with the kingdom, then perhaps we ought to evaluate where our vision is. We have a view that life is at an end soon. That we could be people that today might be our last day. Second thing that he he says for us to remember to do in light of the fact that Jesus is coming is to fervently love one another. Verse 8, fervently love one another. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Another translation is, above all, love each other deeply. And Peter had reminded them of this in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified yourselves for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, this is the word agape, which is unconditional love. That is said here, there are four types of love, four different words in the Greek language that are used for love. This particular one is that of agape. Unconditional love is an action-oriented love. It is a love that would, would be defined not necessarily, or not only by perhaps feelings, but it, because it was a, it's a word that, def, that is love by action. It's the same word that is used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That he what? He gave his one and only son. It was an action to show his love towards others. It is unconditional. God didn't look down, as I've shared with you before. God didn't look down from heaven and say, Oh, those warm and fuzzy human beings. They're so cute. Look at that one over there. And I'm going to die for them. He looked down from heaven. And though we had a rebellious heart... A fist raised to heaven. Hatred of God. God, by His very love, looked down and had mercy and poured out His grace upon all mankind to save them. And that's the kind of love that we are to have. An unselfish love that looks out for the best for others because that's what love is about. It says, what can I do to bless others? What is the best thing for someone else? That I will do so that they are edified, they are built up, they are blessed. That's what the kind of love that is here. Furthermore, it doesn't say that this is only towards those who are our friends. It doesn't say only love those who, that we know. It doesn't say only love those who are in our families. It says love one another. Love one another. Because why? It covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that our own sins are forgiven if we love. What it means is that love overlooks sins that others commit against us. They may offend us, but we overlook it. They may hurt us, but we overlook it. We choose not to hold it against them. After all, 1 Corinthians 13.5 talks about love, doesn't it? That's the famous chapter that's often read at weddings. And it says what? Love keeps No record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't put it in a little gunny sack and and, and decide, well, these are this, this is that. And then later on when something happens and all this stuff comes out, 
That's not what love does. Love overlooks many sins. It overlooks multitude of sins. And a person who is humble and loves others doesn't hold wrongs against them. And these are towards your brothers and your sisters in Christ. That's what it says here. You're not going to dwell on those things of the past, those hurts that somebody might have said to you this morning or done to you last night or whatever it might be. Those are the types of things that we're to do. To love one another, not only just merely love, it says fervently, it means you try hard to love other people who are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And it gives an example. How do we do that? Well, it says to show hospitality. To show hospitality. Now, that was important. That was very important in the New Testament times because many of those who served the Lord were itinerant ministers. They would travel about and they would need a place to lodge and a place to stay. Maybe they were a teacher, they were an evangelist, and they would come into town. And you as a Christian, if you were staying in the New Testament times, were expected or, or desired, they desired to open up your home so they would have a place to stay. And of course, because there were, there were other places that they could stay, you didn't want them to stay in a local inn. Some of them could be expensive and many times they could be very dangerous and not too good of a place to stay. And so they would have a place, they would say, well, why don't you open your home? And the early church needed places that would open their homes to itinerant ministers, itinerant evangelists, etc. They would also need homes for the church to meet in. Because the church didn't meet in a church building down yonder or whatever. They had people's homes. And it could become tiring for people to open up their homes for the church to continually meet. To open up their homes for some stranger which they don't know. Personally, I think it's a blessing to have missionaries and other people stay with me because I'm blessed by hearing of their testimony, what God's doing. I'm encouraged in my faith and I would encourage you to do so if you have the opportunity. Perhaps you have friends or other people whom you know serve the Lord and they're coming into town. Open up your homes to them. Show them hospitality. And this hospitality, the word itself, it means lover of strangers doesn't mean those that you know, but it means those that are strangers. You show hospitality to strangers in addition to those who are in the context of the church. Hospitality takes time, it takes work, but it's a ministry. It's a ministry that we're to do, and it says, without complaining. And this hospitality is an expression of how much you love those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's an expression of sharing of what you have, of your home or, or the place where you live or your apartment or whatever it is. So let me ask you, whom do you invite over to your place? Whom do you invite? Do you invite only your friends? you only invite those who you know, your relatives? Do you only greet those who come into your house that you know? Or do you greet those that you don't know as well that might be your children's friends or your parents' friends? Do you show hospitality to them? How do you show hospitality? When I was a little boy, my mother taught me whenever somebody comes into your home, you always offer them drinks. Break out the 7-Up, which we always had plenty of, you know? And you show them hospitality. You're kind to them and you make them feel welcome. You don't run off into your own room and hide yourself and don't come out and greet others. No, if there's something to eat, you serve them first. That's the type of hospitality. Would you open your home for that? 
Would you show love to another brother or sister in Christ? Or would you show love only to people that you know? Only to your friends or relatives? You open your door to somebody that you don't know so well? How much do you fervently love other people? So we look at our own selves. How selfish are we? Are our prayers self-centered and light that Jesus is going to come? Are our prayers mostly about us? And how much do we love others fervently? And thirdly, the last thing that Peter says is to use our gifts for others. To use our gifts for others, whether speaking or serving. It says here in verse 10, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God has supplied. You know, the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of Romans tells us that when we become a Christian, we're given spiritual gifts. We're given spiritual gifts, gifts that are given to us by the Holy Spirit, gifts that are manifestation, as it says, of the manifold grace of God. You didn't receive these. It's not something that you developed. These were given to you when you became a Christian. They were by the manifold grace of God. And we are to be good stewards. In other words, God has given to us each gifts, spiritual gifts, and we're to use those as good stewards. And they can be categorized in two broad categories, those that are speaking gifts and those that are serving gifts. Speaking gifts such as teaching or exhortation or, or gifts, of, <coughs> gifts of knowledge or whatever it might be. Serving gifts, gifts of giving or gifts of leading or gifts of mercy and gifts of helps or whatever it might be is in that category as well. Broadly defined, you're either speaking or you're serving. Sometimes it's both. The speaking gifts are to be used as one who is speaking the utterances of God. If you have a speaking gift and you're, you're, you're teaching Sunday school, you're leading the youth or whatever you're doing, you're teaching others or whatnot, you're to be speaking the Word of God. That's the implication here. You're to be teaching them the things that God would have you to teach. It's not some human philosophy. We're not here to teach the newest uh, leadership techniques based upon the corporations that are here. We're not here to teach the latest psychological studies that are out on today. We're to be teaching the Word of God. What does God say about this or that? And we teach those things in the context of using our gifts. And likewise, serving. Our serving is to be dependent upon God. And we pray and ask God for wisdom when we counsel others. We ask God who gives us energy and strength to do His will. Why? We do all these things and we ask of God, God, help us. Why? So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever. This little doxology that he adds there is that God might receive all the glory. We praise God if people are affected by this little Sunday school class that we held. We praise God if people are encouraged by the testimony that we gave on the mission field. We praise God by the fact that people might be uh, changed because of the gospel that we shared with them. What a privilege it is to serve God and to see God honored and see God glorified. And that's the whole idea with the gifts that you've been given. 
And if you're not serving God in some way, do you know that is a huge area of life that you're missing out on, the joy that comes from serving God, and you do it with God's strength. And the God will be glorified in all of that. There's a story in today's Christian condensed in an article just in 2008, March, April. Pediatrician David Sercaria shares about how a little girl, a little girl showed him what an honor it was to serve God. He writes this. He said, one Sunday, my wife had prepared a lesson on being useful. She taught the children that everyone can be useful, that usefulness is serving God, and that doing so is worthy of honor. The kids quietly soaked up my wife's words, and when the lesson ended, there was a short moment of silence, and a little girl named Sarah spoke up. Teacher, what can I do? I don't know how to do many useful things. And she didn't anticipate that, the teacher did. My wife quickly looked around and spotted an empty flower vase on the windowsill. Sarah, you can bring in a flower and put it in that vase. That would be a useful thing. Sarah frowned, but that's not important. It is, answered my wife, if you're helping someone. Sure enough, the next Sunday, Sarah brought in a dandelion, placed it in the vase. In fact, she continued to do so every week without reminders or help, she made sure that that vase was filled with a bright yellow flower Sunday after Sunday. When my wife told our pastor about Sarah's faithfulness, he placed the vase upstairs in the main sanctuary next to the pulpit. That Sunday, he gave a sermon on the honor of serving others using Sarah's vase as an example. The congregation was touched by the message and the week started on a good note. During that same week, I got a call from Sarah's mother. She worried that Sarah seemed to have less energy than usual and that she didn't have an appetite. Offering her some reassurances, I made room in my schedule to see Sarah the following day. After Sarah had a battery of tests and days of examinations, I sat nimbly in my office, Sarah's paperwork on my lap. The results were tragic. She had leukemia. On the way home, I stopped to see Sarah's parents so that I could personally share with them the sad news. Sarah's genetics and the leukemia that was attacking her small body were a horrible mix. Sitting at their kitchen table, I did my best to explain to Sarah's parents that nothing could be done to save her life. I don't think I ever had a more difficult conversation than the one that night. Time pressed on. Sarah became confined to bed and to the visits that many people gave her. She lost her smile. She lost most of her weight. And then it came. Another telephone call. Sarah's mother asked me to come see her. I dropped everything and ran to the house. There she was, a small bundle that barely moved. After a short examination, I knew that Sarah would soon be leaving this world. I urged her parents to spend as much time as possible with her. That was Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, church started as usual. The singing, the sermon, it all seemed meaningless. When I thought of Sarah, I felt enveloped in sadness. At the end of the sermon, the pastor suddenly stopped speaking. His eyes wide. He stared at the back of the church with utter amazement. Everyone turned to see what he was looking at. 
It was Sarah. Her parents had brought her for one last visit. She was bundled in a blanket, a dandelion in one little hand. She didn't sit in the back row. Instead, she slowly walked to the front of the church where her vase still perched by the pulpit. She put her flower in the vase and a piece of paper beside it. She returned to her parents. Seeing little Sarah place her flower in the vase for the last time moved everyone. At the end of the service, people gathered around Sarah and her parents, trying to offer as much love and support as possible. I could hardly bear to watch. Four days later, Sarah died. I wasn't expecting it, but our pastor asked to see me after the funeral. He stood at the cemetery near the cars. People walked past us. In a low voice, he said, Dave, I've got something you ought to see. He pulled out of his pocket the piece of paper that Sarah had left by the vase. Holding it out to me, he said, You better keep this. It may help you in your line of work. I opened the folded paper to read in pink crayon what Sarah had written. Dear God, this face has been the biggest honor of my life, Sarah. Sarah's note and her vase have helped me to understand. I now realize in a new way that life is an opportunity to serve God by serving people. And as Sarah put it, that is the biggest honor of all. See, even the youngest child, the youngest person, can serve God. And we serve God and we speak the words of God in order to encourage others. Because the time is short. The time is short and Jesus will come. And when he comes, what will you be found doing? Serving yourself? Praying about things for yourself? Fervently loving yourself? Will you be praying for others? Will you be serving others? Will be speaking encouragement to others? Will be loving others? Showing hospitality, opening your homes to those you don't even know, despite the fact that it may be uncomfortable. How do you serve? Will you be able to say, dear God, this whatever has been the biggest honor of my life. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to serve you. And God, I pray that you would work into our own hearts. God, you know the lives that we live. Father, may they not be centered on us, but may we live with a view that life is short, that our desire might be to give ourselves to serve you. God, we always have reasons why not to. We're too busy with this. We're too busy with that. And God, we pray, may we be honest with you and say, God, we love you and our desire is to give ourselves in service to our King. In Jesus' name, amen.